So in August of 2022, there was an op-ed piece in Al Jazeera. There was an op-ed piece in Al Jazeera by a man named Marwan Bashara. And he, he made a very simple claim. He said, Palestinians have every right to hate Israelis. Duh. Every right to hate Israelis because, in his words, Israel is a settler, colonial, apartheid state. Them's fighting words, aren't they? Okay? And the gist of his op-ed piece as he delved into it was simply this. It's understandable that Palestinians would hate Israelis, but what I can't understand for the life of me is why Israelis hate Palestinians. I don't understand. Why are they like this? <laughs> okay? One ethnic group or nationality hating another ethnic group is actually normative for world history. It's normative. Okay, right now the United Nations tracks all kinds of acts of hate and violence throughout the world. One of them is the Igbo people in Nigeria. You're seeing a picture of them right here. So Nigerians would say the Igbo people, they're not us, they're them. And we hate them and we want them out of our country. And so they'll be kicked and beaten and all kinds of things in the African nation of Nigeria. In Myanmar, which is also called Burma, there's the Rohingya people. And just less than 10 years ago, the Burmese army moved into Rohingya villages and they burned entire cities and towns to the ground. They lined up the women, and then they had made sure that every woman and young girl was raped. And, the Ro and because the Rohingyans, they're not Burmese. They're not us. They're them. And I hate them. We hate them. Okay? Again, this is normative in world history. Throughout the Baltic states in Europe right now, there's the Roma people. Again, victims of all kinds of violence. In the last hundred years... We've gotten a front row seat, haven't we, to how hatred and violence can lead to genocide. A few weeks ago, I talked to you about Rwanda, all of the Hutus killing all of the Tutsis, okay? And just however many years before that, almost, what, 50, 70 years before that in World War II, you had Germans killing all the Jews. So all this killing and hating and all that kind of stuff, again, is normative. Now, because we're Americans, we have this tendency to say to the rest of the world, get your act together. Why can't you be like us civilized people here in America? And the rest of the world responds the way you're looking at me right now, Mike. <laughs> Which is kind of a, um, you might want to go back in your own history, Team America. Like, you've had some hating in your own country. So after the Civil War, if you're not familiar with this, in the South during Reconstruction, there was a lot of anger and hatred and violence. And it formed groups like the Ku Klux Klan. One ethnic group committed to hating and <laughs> beating up and killing another ethnic group. Um, in the 1950s, Congress actually passed laws uh, uh, banning uh, something called desegregation. Uh, they even mobilized the National Guard. But did all of that activity in the 1950s, did it stop hatred and violence? Did it? No, no, you can't legislate that. So one thing that God has accomplished on the cross and through the person of Jesus Christ is that God 
kills or destroys this kind of racial enmity, this kind of ethnic hostility that people can have toward one another as they become in Christ. Once they're in Christ, all of that kind of racial stuff and other stuff drops away and they see each other as brother and sister and they love each other deeply and they manifest the presence of God. And so we're going to look at this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is one of 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And at the heart of this letter, at the heart of Ephesians, is this idea of an apocalypse. Now, it's the Greek word that means something that was hidden has now been revealed. And Paul had that happen to him on the road to Damascus. Leading up to that point, he was convinced that Jesus of Nazareth He's a bad guy. He's leading our people, God's people, astray. I need to arrest these followers of Jesus. I need to make sure they don't talk about this stuff. And then on the way to Damascus, Jesus appears to him and he's like, oh, <laughs> you are the Messiah we've been waiting for. Ding. And so that's at the heart of this letter. And all throughout Ephesians, Paul is kind of unpacking the implications of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the things that he gets into in this section is he makes a claim. And if I can give my big idea for today, Jesus is creating a countercultural family of very different people who love each other deeply and who display the presence of God. Jesus is creating a countercultural family of very different people, preach, <laughs> who love each other deeply and who manifest the presence of God. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. So I'm going to read it, and we're going to go through it together. Paul says this, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumstance, circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now, now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in His own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now, you Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's holy people. You're members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So 
in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, things like racism, nationalism, and economic pride are overcome. And we see this in the first century church where people of different ethnicities and nationalities are at the same table together, where you have people in the higher, highest levels of Roman wealth dining with slaves and their brothers. They see each other as brothers in the family of God. So I kind of want to walk this through verse by verse because it has tremendous implications for us today. The first thing that Paul says is, you Gentiles, that's all of us in this room. You Gentiles, you were outsiders. In the first century, not very many Romans at all wanted to become Jewish. You had to be circumcised. At a certain age, that's a barrier. <laughs> that's a roadblock, okay? And you had to live like a Jew. And even if you did those two things, the place where God met his people, the temple, you couldn't even go inside. There was a wall and you had to stay outside the wall. So even with all of your effort, even with being circumcised, even with all of that stuff. And so Romans looked down on Jews. They thought Jews were crazy. And Jews referred to Romans by using their Hebrew term uncircumcised, and that was a derogatory way of referring to Romans. And Paul, in this passage, uh, he says, even though it affected their bodies and not their hearts, there's a phrase in the Greek, and the phrase in the Greek is made by hands. It's the same phrase used to describe idols. And Paul is kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, kind of alluding to the fact that circumcision in the age of Jesus doesn't mean anything anymore. It doesn't give you anything special. And so in this next passage, Paul draws that far away, brought near. Far away, brought near. You Gentiles, you were far away, but now you've been brought near. One of the special things about being God's people is that they had a closeness to God. And this is drawn out in the Psalms, one Psalm after another. Psalm 148, the people of Israel who are close to him. Psalm 145, the Lord is close to all who call on him. Psalm 85, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. And then Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Gentiles could only get in by submitting to circumcision and following the Torah, and even then they weren't completely in. They were outsiders. And Paul is saying this kind of nearness is now possible for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. God's opened the door wide. And so he draws out what some of that means in the next several verses. In verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace. And it's not just any kind of peace. It's the peace talked about in, through the prophet Isaiah and through the prophets that came to Jerusalem, okay? Um, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, wonderful counselor, mighty God, and he is the prince of what? Peace. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, okay? And, and it's not just that. What Christ has done on the cross is he's broken down the wall of hostility. Now, you look at that and you're like, Oh, so he's just got a, he's gotten rid of racial tension? No, no, no. There's something specific that Paul has in mind because he's a good Jew. So this is a picture of the temple uh, in Jerusalem uh, um, in Jesus' day. So it's an artist's rendering of what that temple 
might have looked like in Jesus' day. Sometimes it's called Herod's temple. And this green line right here that I have in the quarter bottom of the screen is a wall. It's a balustrade. It's a wall about this high, and it went all the way around the temple complex. And so if you were a Gentile, that's all of you and me. If you were a Gentile, you could only get to here. You couldn't go past that wall. Now, if you were a Jewish man or a woman, you could come in the inner court, and then you could go into the court of women. And if you were a man, you could actually bring your animal sacrifice up the steps, and at the doorway to the temple, you could present it to one of the priests who would then take it in and sacrifice it on behalf of you and your family. So there's these levels of separation. In fact, it's even more than that. This is an imprint of a tablet, a stone tablet. There were 13 of them spaced around that balustrade, that four and a half foot tall wall. And this is what it said, and you're looking at it in the Greek. No stranger, that's you and me. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade, round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his ensuing death. Imagine if churches had something like that on their front doors. <laughs> Come in through here and we're going to kill you and it's your fault. <laughs> you, have only, you have only yourself to blame for crossing the line. Well, that's pretty stark. That's pretty stark, okay? If you're, if you're familiar with what happens in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter, what is it, 21? Uh, Paul has had his head shaved because he's taken a vow. And he wants to show his fellow Jews that he takes his Jewishness seriously. Now, Paul gets this idea in his head, and so he walks around, uh, he walks around outside the balustrade with a Greek friend of his named Trophimus. So he and Trophimus are walking around on the appropriate side of the balustrade, and Paul is thinking, everybody knows me. They know how seriously I take my faith. They see my shaved head. They know I've taken a vow, and they see me walking around with this Greek, this Roman. They're all going to conclude, oh, my notions of cleanness are mistaken. <laughs> That's not what happens at all. Paul gets himself in a world of trouble. Rumors get spread that what Paul has done is taken Trophimus on the other side of the wall. So they arrest him. They want to kill him. That's why this is such a big deal. They think he's taken a Roman on the other side of the balustrade. Of course, Paul was just trying to make a point. And the point he's trying to make here, which he'll draw out in Ephesians 2.21, which we're going to get to in a few seconds, is with Jesus, there's no more balustrade. There's no more dividing wall keeping people out for this reason or that. Okay. So let's unpack this a little more. The next few verses. Um, he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. So here's that near and far thing again. One of the things that Paul is insisting in this letter and in his many other letters is that Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is this new humanity where racial hostility melts away. And where people who are in Christ see each other as family, where they love each other deeply, 
and where the presence of God is manifest, it's felt, okay? And, and Paul beats this drum and beats this drum and beats this drum, particularly in his letter to uh, the Galatians. And Paul is saying all of us can come to the Father, all of us, that's Jew and Gentile, and they can have access. And the word access here is the word that would be used if you had an audience with the king. So if you had an audience with King Cyrus or Caesar, that same word is used here to describe all of us who are in Christ Jesus. We have that kind of access. We can go immediately to the king and have an audience and have a saying and be heard. Radical, radical stuff for this time and this period. So in verses 19, Paul unpacks this even more. He says, so now you Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens along with all of God's people. You're members of God's family. And Paul will develop this through his many letters, through this idea of being adopted into God's family, right? Together were his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So let me unpack this stuff at the top. This stuff at the top are all... Uh, Greek words that would be used to describe levels of Roman citizenship. And the ultimate thing in the first century in the Roman Empire was to be a full Roman citizen. You had all kinds of rights and privileges that other people didn't have. To, other people didn't have. You could get it by birth or for a lot of money, you could buy it. And Paul was a Roman citizen, right? And so when Paul is writing this here, the, the, the hearers who would have heard this letter read in their church service, they're like, wait a minute, you mean the kind of privileges that Roman citizens have, like anyone who's in Christ Jesus has all of that and more? What? Are you crazy? Right? So this is kind of the radical nature of what Paul is saying for the context in which he is saying it. And so he draws out this language. Uh, that's that last part of verse 19. You're members of God's family. That word is oikos, by the way. You're members of God's oikos. Okay. And of course, in all of that, the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Have you ever, are you familiar with the archaeological discoveries they made in the 1990s? So I geek out on this kind of stuff. So the, the temple in Jerusalem in the 1990s, they were doing some excavation. And they found these five big cornerstones of the temple complex. Okay? These stones were, get this, 55 feet long, one stone. 55 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet wide, 570 tons. That's Jesus. <laughs> That's Jesus holding everything up. Jesus is the cornerstone. But this new temple isn't finished yet in Paul's mind. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling. This is the axe added to the numbers daily. And so Paul draws out this distinction, and so I want to I kind of put up a diagram that will help you. In the old covenant, in Paul's mind, God filled the temple. That's that physical place in Jerusalem. God filled the temple, or before it, the tabernacle, with his presence. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6 or Ezekiel chapter 43. But in the new covenant, God fills the corporate body of believers. It's not a building. It's people. God fills the gathered body of believers with his spirit, with his presence. And this is different. So in light of this, let me ask a couple of questions. And the first question is simply this. When have you felt like an outsider? For some of you, you've had some track record with church. 
And there were times that church, because of one balustrade or another, helped you to feel very much like an outsider. Maybe that was political beliefs. Maybe that was the fact that you had a tattoo. I don't know what it was. But it kept you on the outside. And then, secondly, who in your circles right now would you say is far from God? Who in your circles right now is far from God? And could you think of just one person? So in light of what Paul has to say in the second chapter of Ephesians about God making this new humanity where the dividing wall of hostility is broken down, I want to ask some questions for us and point out some things. And the first thing is simply this. I believe the American church needs to become more diverse. I don't say that as a red thing or a blue thing. I don't say that as a political thing. I say that as a Jesus thing, a biblical thing. Uh, I say that as a New Testament thing. Now, among American Protestants, that's us in this room, American Protestants in America, tend, they tend to be segregated in churches by race, income, and preference. Race, income, and preference. So if you go to any major city, any suburb in America, if it's not Pentecostal, it tends to be predominantly white or non-white. It tends to be predominantly middle class and above, or it tends to be poor. And then Americans further uh, segregate themselves by preference. In other words, I like A, but not B. So I go to the church of A, not the church of B, because I don't like B. <laughs> and at the church of A, I meet other people who also like A and not B, and we all like the same things, okay? Um, if the tie that binds American churchgoers is simply preference, that's not strong enough, gang. That's not strong enough to weather conflict, and it's not strong enough to weather hard times. Um, so if I could make a big ask of you today, it would be simply this. Would you make a commitment to Jesus and his church and make that commitment above what you like and prefer? Would you make a commitment to Jesus and his church above what you like and prefer? I'll let you in on a secret. I have preferences when it comes for church. One of them is I like wearing suits and ties. I would wear one every Sunday if I could. I love church choirs. Have you noticed we don't have those things here at Generations Community Church? In other words, Generations Community Church is not built around Max Vanderpool's preferences. Okay? Um, and I can remember a time, Josh, there's a new set of drums here in our sanctuary today. I don't know if you noticed that. Okay? I did. <laughs> I know you noticed it, because, <laughs> but other people may not have noticed the new set of drums. I can remember a moment at the mother, at our mother congregation. Uh, I had grown up Baptist. I had grown up in contexts where drums were simply not allowed. We had organs and we sung hymns, and that's what we did, and that's how you sang to the Lord. And the Sunday that the drum set appeared, I remember driving home with Jenny and saying, "We got to leave this church. They have a drum set. I can't do drum sets." Da 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 da. And she chastised me like nobody's business. You are going to leave these people that we have loved and we are part of those fam and we are part of this family. We have been through some hard times in the last few years and you're just going to up and plug out just because of a drum set? Show me the chapter and verse, Vanderpool. <laughs> As it turns out, there isn't one. <laughs> and so we stayed. And so we stayed. Um, 
the American church needs to become a little bit more diverse. And the American church needs to be built on something stronger than preference. Um, the second thing I want to draw out is this metaphor of a barrier wall that we see in Ephesians chapter 2. That's a really good metaphor. That is a really good metaphor. Because in church settings that I've been part of, we've built all kinds of balustrades. Oh, you have a tattoo? Yeah, you can't be a Christian. <laughs> oh, you vote that way? You can't be a Christian. Oh, this is true about you? You, you have a motorcycle? Mm, you definitely can't be a Christian. I'm pretty sure you also work for Satan. <laughs> okay, so we had all kinds of balustrades. My mother, I've told this many times, my mother in the 1970s did not want to wear a dress. She wore pants. And for the church that we were a part of for many, many years, that meant she could not enter the doors of church. It was simply not acceptable. I know some of you, you know, you're not old enough to appreciate this kind of stuff, but that was a thing. That was a thing. It was a balustrade. Okay? So... Any and all expectations that people need to get their act together or they need to dress a certain way or vote a certain way before they can encounter God, that's balustrades that we're erecting. Now, the good news about Jesus is that he does welcome everybody, but Jesus also, when they say yes, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Like he asks a lot, doesn't he? <laughs> but he also gives a lot, right? So that's part and parcel of it. The barrier wall is an excellent metaphor. And so a question that you and I can ask ourselves is, I wonder, Lord, do I have any balustrades in place that are keeping others out of your presence? And then lastly, magic boxes aren't a Christian thing. So I want to talk about magic boxes for a minute, okay? I do believe in sacred spaces, but I don't believe in magic boxes. Uh, for the Jews, the temple was a very special place, sacred place, holy place. Some might even say magical place. You could go and encounter God. And they would make pilgrimages, pilgrimages three times a year. Um, I had an opportunity because I teach on the side for Asbury these past many nights during the outpouring to kind of work the line. So I was a host on the long line of people waiting to get into Hughes. And one of the things I discovered is I would talk with people and point out other places and spaces that they could go Almost to a person, they would say, no, thank you. I'm going to stay in line. I want to go inside that building. Now, I know in my head, theologically, God's not limited to one place, is he? Is God everywhere? Yes. Is God particularly present when two or three are gathered in his name? Yes. It doesn't matter what the name on the outside of your box is. <laughs> God's there in the box, outside the box. God's not constrained by a box. And what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 2, and it's very, very important, is that uh, through him, you Gentiles are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. People are where God's spirit lives, the gathered people of God, those who are in Christ Jesus that's where God dwells, okay? So that leads me to, to make this admonition for all of us. You want to be present where God is present. And one of the places where God is present is here on any given Sunday, right? You want to be present where God is present. Now, if I can go back to this first point here, 
also on the bottom steps of Hughes, I also got a, a, a little taste of what that is. So on the eighth or ninth day of the Asbury outpouring, my job that night was to, uh, other hosts would bring college students to me, and then I would take them inside the auditorium, okay? And I was working with a couple of college students whom I had met in this kind of staging room. One of them, I think, was from Uganda, and the other was from South Africa, okay? One of them was black, one of them was white. And there were a couple of Asbury students, uh, missionary kids, I think. And so uh, I leave them 10 steps up, and I'm there at the bottom of the steps, and this well-dressed middle-aged man comes up to me, and he's got questions. So I say, hi, I'm Max. You know, welcome to Wilmore. What can I help you with? And he's wanting to know, well, where's the line? Where's the end of the line? How does this work? And so I say to him, what's your name? Where are you from? And he says, I'm Udi. I'm from... Uganda. And I say to him, you're crazy. He says, no, I'm Udi. <laughs> I said, you had to get on a plane. I said, are you the president of a country? Do you have your own jet? And he says, laughs. And he says, no, 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 no. He said, I had it. It's okay, but I had to be here. And as coincidence had it, I said, well, Udi, I think you want to meet a couple of students that I'm working with right now. And so I went five steps up and I grabbed them. And boom, right then and there, broad smiles. Where are you from? They were from different places on the continent of Africa. They were different races and ethnicities, but by their smiles, by the way they embraced one another, there it was, little church, <laughs> right there on the bottom steps of this little college in nowhere, Kentucky, right? Again, ethnic hostility is the norm for human relations. So anytime you can get people who would normally hate each other or have hostility toward each other to be family, that speaks powerfully. By the way, one of the ways this church does it is because we've got diehard political reds and diehard political blues in this congregation, and yet we do our best to love each other well and manifest the presence of God. 